Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Okay, first of all, this is probably going to be a shorter episode. My apologies on the short length of this one. I just have a few stories to run through here. Uh, first of all, the jury selection for the Crumbly trial regarding the mother is taking place right now as I'm recording this. Uh, I plan on jumping into the Zoom call as soon as it's available and just kind of picking out what I can pick out. I know that Kristen is there too, and, and she's paying attention to it more more closely, of course. Um, I'm sure I'll have far more information to bring to you regarding all of this on Friday. But either way, she did say in the last episode on the Dangerous Info podcast with Jesse James that the crumbly parents are being tried separately. And this, of course, is an interesting angle. Could be, again, that they're trying to pin the purchase of the gun on the father and blame him potentially a little bit more as opposed to the mother. Maybe they're going after the mother again for, I don't know, neglecting Ethan Crumbly throughout this entire situation. But there's a few follow-up points here that I want to make regarding the 562-page document, again, from Guidepost Solutions that summarizes this entire case or certainly summarizes the incident and, and what occurred in the days leading up. Again, there's a couple of things. First of all, I have finished the document finally, um, and it is, again, a must-read, I think, for just about anyone. It, it really does get you in the mind and in the minds of the people who work within these school environments and how much they cannot possibly manage and how much they can't handle. But deep down into the document, well into the 400s, the uh, the guidepost investigators again reach their conclusion, and they openly state here, and it's titled "Responsibility of Hopkins and Ejac." Again, this was the school counselor and the dean of students. They said, "Quote: Finally, we believe that the counselor Sean Hopkins and the dean of students Nick Ejac, who met with the shooter on November 30th of 2021, bear responsibility, along with the board, the superintendent, and the principal." Based on interviews with other counselors, it is likely that Hopkins did not receive sufficient, if any, threat assessment training. It does not appear that he was trained to report concerning conduct that might suggest a potential for violence to an administrator, and it does not appear that he was made aware of the threat assessment form 8400F1, which guides threat assessment team members in conducting an evaluation, including inquiring about access to weapons, unquote. I agree with all of that. I would simply add Pamela Fine into the mix here, because the two individuals that were communicating the most between one another that were, I would say, certainly school employees and district employees in the position where they could actually talk with Ethan directly, were Pamela Fine and Sean Hopkins. And unfortunately, again, Pamela Fine isn't necessary. I mean, she's mentioned throughout the document as also being responsible, but in this particular bullet point, they're, they're simply saying that the last two people to talk with Ethan Crumbly bear the largest amount of responsibility. I think they all do. I don't think that that can be divided up or fractioned out in any particular way. Again, the very school teachers themselves made no effort to contact the parents to schedule a parent conference. And they themselves might say, well, that's not our responsibility. We're supposed to handle that through the counselor. And then it's ultimately the counselor's decision. That's wrong. That's completely false. 
then that would be a complete false justification of the entire situation. The American public has to understand that American school teachers bear the most responsibility in all of these situations. And unfortunately, many of them are inadequate when it comes to teaching their own subject, which means they're certainly not going to be adequate when it comes to noticing this kind of behavior, let alone following up with logical conclusions and logical solutions as to what needs to happen with a child like this. So I I wanted to make mention of that. The other thing, too, is that in the 560, 570-some-odd page report, the Guidepost Solutions Report, they don't blame the ALICE training for anything. In fact, they openly state that the ALICE training worked the best that it could. There are a couple of slight improvements that could be made, but the ALICE training did exactly what is intended to actually occur. And while I agree with that, I agree with it for the sole purpose that the ALICE training, as, I've, as I even said on the Dangerous Info podcast, is that it's not designed to save lives before a school shooting takes place. It's designed to minimize the loss of life after or during an actual shooting is occurring. That's the only reason it's there. Now, of course, what's interesting about this and may cause some levels of confusion is that the ALICE training also involves and gives, I should say, students the ability to run and flee. This right here, again, is where this entire ALICE training can, uh, can cave in. And I could take this a number of different directions, but if you're locking some people down, and other people, of course, are out in the hallways or in the bathroom or in the gymnasium or they're in a courtyard or in an atrium or wherever they are. Again, even if they're, say for example, in an atrium of a building next to the front door or the entrance of said building, like a school building in this particular case, what is that child going to do? What is that student going to do? Are they going to hear gunshots, hear the Alice lockdown, and then run outside of the building and run as far away from the building as humanly possible? Are they going to run into a classroom? Are they going to dive into the main office? Are they going to hide in a bathroom? I mean, where are they going to go and what are they going to do? And and again, I'm not sure that that's up to the school to decide. I think that's why they've added and continue to emphasize the whole run, fight, or flight mentality in these kinds of situations, which again is beyond horrific because this isn't what the environment is supposed to be. But ultimately, I I, I just believe that that right there would create even more confusion, certainly when it comes to tracking down students and where students are and being responsible for them. The good part about, of course, fleeing these particular situations is that you're putting your own life in your own hands and, and, and you're doing whatever you can as a fleeing student or even a fleeing staff member uh, in order to, again, save your own life and potentially save the lives of others. You would assume that, of course, that's, that's what people would do. Again, the interesting part about that is that if they are fleeing, are they fleeing toward the shooter and not know it? Or are they fleeing away from them? And again, just sort of crossing their fingers and hoping that they're running in the opposite direction of where the gunfire is coming from. Again, do they feel compelled to run and help? Do they not feel compelled to run and help? This really is, one, again, one of those horrific situations that would test anybody's mettle uh, 
again, regarding what they could possibly handle or, or how they would react in, in a situation like this. The other thing, too, again, is the assistant principal, again, was openly mentioned throughout the document as being rather heroic in that, again, she, she ran toward the actual gunfire and, uh, and attempted to help Tate, who was one of the, the students who lost his life and, and was, again, delivering CPR to him and, and, uh, and staying with him, uh, of course, as he passed away there in the hallway. But what was interesting, too, about that very specific situation, if I didn't mention it before, is that Ethan Crumbly walked past her as she was helping Tate after he had shot Tate. And she actually addressed Ethan Crumbly and talked to him as he was holding onto the gun and as, again, he was there, or at least he had it hidden in his sweatshirt or, or whatever it may have been. But uh, either way, sh she became rather aware that, that Ethan was one of the individuals or the individual who had done the shooting, but again, attempted to talk to him and, and tell him that this wasn't the way or something along those lines. But there was an actual physical uh, interaction between verbal interaction between Ethan Crumbly and her as she's leaning over Tate's body, uh, which is a, a very difficult read within this document. But at the same time, she was also putting herself in harm's way, and she could have easily been killed, and uh, and, and died right next to Tate as well. So there's too many scenarios in this. There's too many ifs. There's too many what have yous. But there is one consistent thing that runs through this at the very end of the document, and it is that every single family that was involved in this all blamed the district and blamed the individuals who worked within the district, certainly the higher-ups, again, the principal of the building, the counselor, uh, the superintendent, board members, you name it. They blamed all of these people for not doing their jobs and this is, again, where it even gets more disgusting, I think. They blamed all of them for not even reaching out to them after all of this occurred. Again, the serious nature of that alone is beyond alarming. Any one of them, the superintendent, anybody, could have reached out to these families specifically and, and told them you know, that they were sorry, that they wished that none of this had occurred clearly, uh, that they feel terrible, that no words can describe. How horrible this situation is. I mean, they could have said a million things. And they made, of course, public comments during board meetings where they said, you know, this is awful and this is terrible, but they never reached out to the families individually. And that could have been because they were told not to by their lawyers. I'm not entirely sure, but either way, you know, it, it, it's in a moment like that where you have a responsibility to just be a good person and to just not not hover yourself around lawyers and take every single piece of advice. How about you just stand up for yourself and you think for yourself once and apologize to these individuals and attempt to empathize with them, even though it's impossible at this stage of the game. But either way, uh, th that's my ultimate summary of all of that. Um, there may not be a reason to necessarily reference it again in the future. Again, I, I highly recommend going over to the Dangerous Info podcast and checking out our discussion on that. Uh, numerous revelations, again, a Chinese connection as well. And in fact, it was, it was Kristen and Bobby, specifically Kristen, I think, who sent 
in our text thread anyway, an image and a picture of a female who, again, is associated with, I believe, a neighboring university. I don't think it's Michigan, uh, Michigan or University of Michigan. I think it's Michigan State, if memory serves. But either way, you know, it's an Asian female, uh, you know, went to school and college, certainly college in Michigan. And this right here, again, could be a communist connection with what's going on there, because one of the threads that runs through this entire thing is whether they be a Bolshevik Jew or they, or they end up being a communist in, you know, from, from China or what have you. These individuals, and it's in the Saul Alinsky playbook also, which I know that Jesse's familiar, familiar with as well, is that they, don't wanna, they never want to let a crisis go to waste. And this right here is a perfect inroad that they have to capitalize on this crisis. Certainly with the surrounding geographic areas Jesse laid out in, in his show, but also just the opportunity to take over a school district and communize it more than it already has been. Again, I, I can't emphasize this enough that that is the, that is the definition of Bolshevism and communism. That, that is the end road. That's the end game. The end game of what happens when you employ all of those communist policies and all of those Bolshevik policies and all of this watering down of everything and watering down of policy procedure and making excuses for kinds of behavior, the ultimate end is death. And it's already happened in that district, which means if you invite in more communists, you're going to have more death because that's communism. That's the end game. That's it. You've heard me say Bolshevism always ends the same way. It's you up against a wall and a gun to the back of your head, and then a trigger gets pulled. That's the end game. That's the end goal. So for people to continuously send their, send their children to those kinds of environments, and frankly, it's all of them. It's all of them. It's not just the one in Michigan. It's everywhere. They're all doing this. It's just the pathetic justification that people have when they, when they sit back and they say, well, that's not going to happen here. Or, I know so-and-so who runs the district, or I'm friends with these people who work in this building, and my kid goes there and this won't happen. You have no idea what's going to happen. Not a clue. But having studied communism and Bolshevism for quite some time now, certainly since I would say 2014, I can openly tell you that the end is exactly the same for everybody. And it's happening. It's not just the technological tracking devices. It's not, you know, the watered-down policy. It is, it is justifying violence within a school building and not getting rid of the riffraff and getting rid of the illegality permanently and then sending the message that we're done with all of this. That, that, that isn't going to happen in any of these environments anymore. The ship has sailed. The die has been cast. They're all headed in this communistic direction further than they already are. And there's no coming back from it because they can't. Again, even if you got a majority on a school board, for example, as you've heard me run through this scenario before, you fire the superintendent, you fire the treasurer, you take a wrecking ball to the district office. The next move, of course, which is an even harder move to make, is you end up getting rid of all of the technology. You get rid of the Google Docs. You get rid of the, 
the wireless laptops, the, you know, the, the Google classrooms of the world. You get rid of all of this stuff. It can be done, but you're going to have to cancel contracts. And you're going to, ha- again, you're going to have to get your, your lawyers involved to cancel these contracts. But unfortunately, so many people are brainwashed in these environments that it's become as ubiquitous as putting on your underwear. I mean, it's that common, which means if, if you don't have it on and, and, and you don't utilize these kinds of, of ubiquitous technologies, everybody's going to look at you like something is wrong with you, including the parents. The parents in these environments are going are gonna to start turning their metaphorical guns, so to speak, on, on the employees and the district officials and the, and the, the school board itself. Even when the school board openly shows these parents that this is a national security threat, that's how, that's how far gone these parents are. They're so brainwashed that, again, they will defend their own enslavement and the enslavement of their own children. Well, I want my kid to be competent, and I want my kid to, to have access to this technology because they need it, and they need to be prepared for the workforce, and blah, blah, blah. And they're going to come up with all these excuses. And it's all garbage. It's all part of the giant brainwashing scheme that you need them to be successful, that you need all their toys and shiny objects in order to succeed in the future. All of that couldn't be further from the truth. It's absolutely ridiculous. So that's kind of my two cents on the whole thing. Again, let me... uh, Let me get into this recent news article from NBC. Again, you got to take it with a grain of salt because, well, more than a grain. Take it with a whole truckload of salt because this NBC article is terrible, as you would expect. And immediately, of course, goes after the parents and blames them without really, again, highlighting the unusual nature of this entire trial in such a situation. But this was from the other day, and it's titled, the parents of a school shooter are heading to trial. The rare case could put them, could pit them rather, against each other. It says James and Jennifer Crumbly face four counts of involuntary manslaughter each after their son Ethan killed four students at Oxford High School in 2021. A little ways down the article, it says, quote, Defendants requesting separate trials for a related crime is not uncommon and can be a part of a larger strategy, said Jeffrey Swartz, every single time, a former county judge in Florida and prosecutor, I'm sorry, professor rather, at the Cooley Law School in Michigan and Florida. Quote, the Crumblies are not going to contest that their son was guilty, Swartz said. Quote, if I'm, pro- if I'm projecting in this particular case, each parent is going to point the finger at each other. Which one knew, which one knew about Ethan's problems? or who was responsible for hiding and securing the gun. Holding two trials at different times could also benefit whoever goes second, as it gives their defense lawyer a chance to reassess what happened in the first trial and what may or may not have played to the jury, Swartz added. A gag order uh, imposed rather, by Oakland County Circuit Judge Cheryl Matthews in 2022 bars both county prosecutors and the separate lawyers for the Crumblies from speaking publicly. The involuntary manslaughter charges hinges on the prosecution, convincing a jury that each parent played a role in the deaths and that they were the result of unlawful negligence, although neither parent intended for people to die. Again, that's the manslaughter stuff here. 
It says if found guilty, the Crumbleys could each face up to 15 years in prison and a $7,500 fine per charge. It's not unheard of for a parent to be held liable for gun violence perpetrated by their child. In December, a Virginia mother was sentenced to two years in prison for felony child neglect after her six-year-old obtained her firearm and shot his teacher during class. Of course, I brought that up. Um, I was unaware that the mother had been sentenced to two years in prison for that six-year-old. But that's different, is it not? I mean, isn't that slightly different? Ethan had shot the gun, knew how to load the gun. He, he, was, he was well aware of, of what he was doing. He was drawing pictures of the gun. The question will come down to, again, did the parents know that, that he was drawing all of this? Had, you know, did they have access to his journal, his personal diary slash journal that he was writing in and so on and so on? So again, you know, purchasing a gun's not illegal. Shooting a gun with your child isn't illegal. It's a hobby for many individuals, and this is just the way that it is. But again, I think that, and I sure hope, that both defense lawyers or the parents Go after the school and go after the school employees. Because again, why, why these individuals would have so-called immunity as a result of working for the school district is beyond me. Of course, what I'm certain will happen too is that throughout both of the parents' trials, they'll bring in psychologists and they'll evaluate because they probably already have evaluated the parents themselves and they have testimony from the parents themselves having potentially talked with a psychologist already, not to mention the individual who was the psychologist after the shooting regarding Ethan Crumbly. I think her last name is Miller, a female if, if memory serves, but they too again evaluated him and, and took statements from him as well. I'm sure, again, all of that's going to come out in, uh, in this trial, so I don't know. It's, it's remarkably interesting. I find this fascinating, but I'm telling you what, it, it, really, it really does seem like this is purposely designed to, again, I think it's rather obvious, take attention away from the school district itself and the policies and procedures and the overwhelming nature of that entire environment, which again is, is not safe. I said it in the substacks, I've said it on the show, I'm going to say it again. Sending your children to these environments is a national security threat for the nation and for you as a family. It just is. That's my two cents. I can't believe people are still doing it. It's getting more and more communistic and Bolshevistic by the day. That's not going away. Again, COVID was the Trojan horse, as you heard Vanessa Hurst say on this show years ago. She was right. She was 100% right. This was their green flag go to, to bring in more foreign influence than, than what already existed. You already had the Zuckerbergs and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Qatar and the U, uh, UAE organizations, and you name it. You already had the UN and UNESCO and all the rest of them. I mean, you can pick any of these organizations. They, they were already there. But all COVID did was create a manufactured crisis in order to sell the so-called solution to all of these districts nationwide, and they all took it, didn't they? Because they all took the free CARES Act cash and the ESSER money. They took all the, the new games, gimmicks, and nonsense, and they actually got people to wear masks, lock down children, uh, contact trace them. Remember all that, too? The contact tracing. 
Pull the kid aside and say, Who have you been around? What have you done? Who have you talked with? Now you're going home to your parents. Who have your parents talked to? It doesn't get more Bolshevistic than that. They trained them all. And they got them to all do it under the guise of, you know, we need to be safe and we need to be protected from this invisible thing that doesn't exist. It's nuts. The, the, the red flags are everywhere. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. So I'm going to leave it there, but there you go. That's the, uh, that's the crumbly case as it stands. In fact, uh, like I said, Kristen's there, if memory serves here, in the courtroom itself, and she says the following here as I'm recording this. So it's going to be a little late, but anyway, she said that there are 350 jurors there. Today is apparently, well, today's Tuesday when I'm recording this, but Tuesday is the, uh, the jury selection portion of this. She says there are 350 jurors there. A thousand of them are on backup. And the prosecution has apparently seven lawyers on their entire team. So there you go. They got to do whatever they can to make this stick. And they're going to do whatever they have to do to try to make this stick. And I, I think it's disgusting, frankly. I think it's gross. Because again, the, the war is not just on the crumbly parents. It's on you too. It's on me also. It's on anybody who is a gun owner. And then again, if they turn if they turn around and their child steals their gun or takes their gun or whatever, well, this is going to set the stage for potential locking your guns in your house all of the time if you have minors around or if you have minors visiting. And then again, if something else happens, well, you can't at, you know you have to. Keep your, keep your gun in a specified kind of place in order to not be prosecuted if something were to take place. It's just such a slippery slope, but there you go. All right. A few more uh, education-related stories here, and then one quick little jab story. And then I'll cut loose here. Let's see. First of all, our educator who works at a university in Virginia, I'm, I'm looking forward to having them on sometime here, hopefully in the near future. But they sent me this story, and it's a rather interesting admission from the Wall Street Journal. Of course, we don't like the Wall Street Journal for a variety of reasons. But either way, back in the day, I suppose they were a little more conservative to some extent. But it says the following here, why Americans have lost faith in the value of college. It says three generations of college for all, quote unquote, in the United States has left most families looking for alternatives. They make a rather interesting admission here in the second paragraph. It says, quote, in the past decade, the percentage of Americans who expressed a lot of confidence in higher education fell from 57 to 36 percent, according to Gallup. A decline in undergraduate enrollment since 2011 has translated into three million fewer students on campus. Nearly half of parents say they would prefer not to send their children to a four-year college after high school, even if there were no obstacles financial or otherwise. Two-thirds of high school students think they will be just fine without a college degree. I love this. I love it. Puts, it, it just warms me. It's like, a, again, a warm blanket on a cold day. That, that is excellent news. It's the endless stories and the endless uh, horrific examples, again, of 
sending your child off to college and then they come back a completely different person. It just turns out to be a massive fork in the road in their lives. And instead of going this way, they go that way. And they end up again furthering their belief in things that are not real. And that again is its own slippery slope and that's putting it mildly. But here's what it also says. It says the pandemic, it doesn't even put it in quotes, it should because it didn't happen, drove home a sobering realization for a lot of middle-class American families that, quote, college for all is broken for most. Says Arthur Levine, President Emeritus of Columbia Teachers College and author of The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future, compares this moment in post-secondary education to the seismic change that followed the Industrial Revolution. That 19th century wave of disruption washed over schools designed to meet the needs of the sectarian agricultural society and transformed higher education into a sprawling system of community college, colleges, rather, land-grant universities and graduate schools. The dilemma faced by today's high school students is that while a similarly massive economic disruption has arrived, new educational alternatives have not. It says, quote, whatever comes next, Levine says of Generation Z, it's not going to come soon enough for them. Well, I would, I would, uh, I'd take it a step further. And I would say again, as I've made this comparison before, this is the trash compactor scene in Star Wars. It's the same thing metaphorically. But instead of the walls coming in from the left and the right, they're coming in from the top and the bottom. There's no escaping this. If the, if the left and the right paradigm doesn't crush the individuals and the human beings within, the top and bottom will get them too. And then they'll be caught up in the gears, and then before you know it, even if they're still in there, they're unproductive. They can't move around and there's nothing that they can do. This has, again, everything to do with communism. This has everything to do with Marxism, Bolshevism, and the Jewish influence that is the foundation of the Prussian education system and the Frankfurt School that made its way over here in the late 1800s, early 1900s, if not sooner than that. It's not an accident. But again, to just say, well, you know, the, the degrees that they're getting in college are not as productive when it comes to the workforce and blah, blah, blah. The fact is, is that because these environments are as overwhelmed as they are, they're graduating students from high school that can't read, write, or comprehend. They can't type. They don't know digital literacy. They don't know how to search for accurate information on the internet. They don't even know how deep the internet goes. Take this very app that I'm reading this from, for example. The Apple News app is so poisonous as an application that when you open it on a computer, here's what, you're, here's what you're fed as suggested by Siri regarding your news outlets of viable information. You have the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, Daily Mail, Forbes, National Review, New York Magazine, New York Post, Newsweek, and Vox. These are the ones that are already pre-programmed into this app. And then, of course, if you actually start going through all of the news articles that exist, they're all the stuff that you would see on the, you know, next to a conveyor belt at a grocery store. 
All of those magazines exist on here also. Sports, entertainment, you know, newspapers, money and business, style and beauty, food, travel. Th- this entire application, this Apple News app, again, is beyond poisonous. But again, if somebody opens this up on their phone and they're a youngster, they're going to go, well, it's on this app. I mean, all the news places are right here. They have no idea that BitChute is, is an actual thing, that that's a video streaming platform, that Rumble is a video streaming platform, that this is where you're more likely to find the truth. And it goes even deeper than what those particular outlets offer also. So it's, it's gatekeeping 101 at every, you know, at, at every possible stop that you can make when it comes to technology. The problem is the instruction is lacking because you don't have competent people delivering the instruction. And if these individuals, again, are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to attend these universities and the person they're paying to do the instruction doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, the person is screwed if they're not a free thinker and if they're not spending an entire day on a computer trying to find the truth. That's also, again, why I'm an advocate for online learning. You have no choice but to immerse yourself in digital literacy as you are in an online environment. You will, you will find the deepest, darkest, and yet brightest corners and elevations and dimensions of the internet that you can possibly imagine. And I should say this too, of course, this is rather common within the university setting, they never have courses that teach bias in literature and bias in media. And if they do, we know how they politically bend. They don't bend in a, uh, certainly in a truthful way. They'll say, well, Donald Trump said this, and his son said this, and his administration said this, and now this is what the, uh, the Washington Post said about that. So which one is true? I mean, again, we can take a guess as to the angle that the professor would take in that manufactured situation, but that's a real situation, and that kind of stuff does occur. But at the very least, and this is the positive aspect, is that less parents are sending their children to college environments, and thank God for it. Thank God. Because again, as that particular professor um, in, in that Wall Street Journal article apparently couldn't allude to, he doesn't understand, certainly in his book, he doesn't understand that the future of higher education is not uncertain, as he says. It's written in stone. The future of higher education is it will cease to exist, or it will only be for some who are either the most brainwashed or what have you, but even so, that's not a winning business model. That's not a business model that's going to stand the test of time. If Rome can fall, ladies and gentlemen, so can the brick-and-mortar institutions that have been responsible for brainwashing everybody since their inception. Now, I'm sure there was a time, certainly before the 1900s, when they weren't doing that. They were probably teaching propaganda as they actually were. They, they, they were teaching the dangers of propaganda, is what I mean to say. The, the differences between good and evil propaganda. Again, you, you go back and take a college examination from the 1800s, every single one of us would fail it. We'd all fail. They're far too advanced. They were far too advanced back then, based on today's standards anyway. And therein lies the problem. The constant distraction of today has dumbed down endless people. 
and it's not gonna it's not gonna stop. It won't quit. There's also this here. This is rather interesting, rather gossipy, but it's something that's going on in Florida and uh, remarkably disgusting. But it should also tell you again the the nature of school board members and those that sit on school boards and the narcissistic personality disorder that these people have, which again was something that was brought up. Uh, in the, on the Dangerous Info podcast in our discussion the other night, and it also is certainly emblematic of, of what goes on within most school boards, certainly in Oxford, Michigan. There's no doubt about that. But right here with this particular Florida story, this is remarkably dirty and incredibly interesting. Uh, this is from Her- the heraldtribune.com. It is titled, Continued Calls for Bridget Ziegler to Resign Dominate Sarasota School Board Meeting. The subtitle here, for the second meeting in a row, public comment lasted more than three hours, dominated by calls for Ziegler to resign. Now, Bridget Ziegler is the wife of a Florida politician, Christian Ziegler, who was, I believe, forced to leave his position as a result of having or engaging in a sex scandal and a three-way with he, his wife, and another woman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, let me get into this, and, and we'll get into the background here. But again, she's re- his, his wife, Bridget Ziegler, is refusing to step down. And she's not even commenting on it because she's a narcissist. So when the public is yelling at her and, and telling her to resign, she's saying, well, I'm, I'm just here. I'm not going to speak to any of that, but I'm just here to protect the students and care about the advancement of this school district, and blah, blah, blah. So here's what it says. It says, quote, The Sarasota County School Board convened Tuesday for the first time since members voted to ask their colleague, Bridget Ziegler, to resign from her position amid a continuing investigation into an alleged sexual assault involving her husband, Christian. The meeting agenda contained 53 items ranging from revised district policies to joining a national lawsuit against social media companies. However, no item compared to the spectacle of the meeting's public comment time, which saw nearly 70 people speak for almost three hours, most asking Ziegler's resignation. Tuesday marked the second consecutive board meeting dominated by the Ziegler scandal as the former Moms for Liberty co-founder and incumbent District 1 board member stands firm amid the boisterous calls for her resignation. Ziegler's husband, former Florida GOP chairman Christian Ziegler, was accused of sexual battery by a woman with whom the Ziegler's previously had a consensual threesome. Christian Ziegler was removed from his position as the head of the Republican Party of Florida in a one-sided vote on January 8th. Public commenters at Tuesday's meeting and in December cited perceived hypocrisy in Bridget Ziegler telling law enforcement that she had a sexual relationship with a woman, given her support for legislation such as the Parental Rights in Education Act, dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law, by critics. Ziegler has also posted anti-transgender social media posts. Well, that, that doesn't matter. The fact is, is that she's, she's careless, and that's putting it mildly, but she's careless, and she doesn't belong there. She should resign, but again, she's a narcissist. This is what these people do. Again, the degeneracy that they engage in in the bedroom and in the privacy of their own homes, 
If it comes out into the public, these individuals should always step down because that degeneracy finds its way into their working environment, period. So keep the pressure on her. You know, that's my two cents. I'm going to basically stop it there regarding the story, but they should keep the pressure on her. They should leave the district, of course. That should go without saying. Um, But divide and conquer. Continue to go after her, and eventually she'll snap. Eventually she'll break. And so will the other board members. And then, of course, the divide and conquer strategy uh, is contingent, rather, on individuals watching all of this take place and not wanting to even run for the position. Unfortunately, if someone does want to run for that position, even after all of that attacking, that person, again, would be a full blown narcissist and at face value could not be trusted because only a psycho would want to sit in the same seat as Bridget Ziegler if she were to resign at some point. Doesn't matter, again, if they're left or right, ladies and gentlemen, these people are dirty. They're all dirty, and they all help each other get these kinds of positions. Again, you're the head of the GOP in Florida, and your wife just so happens to be sitting on one of the larger school districts and one of the larger school boards in uh, Sarasota County. Not an accident. She was probably handed the position. It was probably given to her either via voter fraud or her pseudo-association with the old Moms for Liberty thing. Either way, okay. Which, by the way, I highly recommend you watch this. I'm not going to play it here on the show, although I probably could because you'd lose your mind. But if you're driving and you were to listen to it, you'd go off the road. Bounce into the last war video and watch the 12-minute clip between Joy Reid and one of the co-founders for Moms for Liberty talking about the degenerate books that exist in, in school libraries. I mean, your, your head will hurt. You, you will feel physical pain at the end of that conversation and throughout. It is exhausting. It's frankly just two morons having a conversation. And again, you know, Moms for Liberty, good for them. You know, they're, uh, they're well-intended, again, either with their activist movements and, and trying to keep the perverse books out of libraries. I mean, that goes without saying, but they could advocate for homeschooling. They could do that, but notice how they're not. Again, they could advocate for factual books regarding factual history being brought into libraries, but they're not even doing that. Again, I can see the middle road from a different dimension in this entire scenario. You're just watching these two fools, so to speak, argue about something that you don't really have to argue about. If there are perverse books in a library, in a school, or in a district that the district keeps advocating for, then leave the district. But, but again, Moms for Liberty isn't advocating for that. They're advocating for reform. Why? Because there's profit in reform. And if you're an NGO or a 501c3 and you're doing whatever you can, you have to find that, that niche and that little, uh, I'm not sure what you would call it, You're finding that little avenue where you know you're going to get enough support to raise enough money to line your own pockets while maintaining an argument and a conversation that shouldn't even be happening in the first place. When the option to actually shut down such an argument is remarkably easy, and that's just leaving. But again, they're not advocating for that. So keep them, uh, you know, keep them at a distance and certainly observe them maybe from a distance. I'll continue to maybe pay attention a little more to them than I have in the past. 
But again, they just sound like another NGO to me. And that's, that's my take, but who knows? Okay. Sicily sent me this. This is disturbing. From Artesian, New Mexico, the Artesianews.com. It is titled, NMDOH Detects Drug Traces in Wastewater at Artesia High School and Park Junior High. This is out of Santa Fe here. It says, the New Mexico Department of Health has begun expanding its wastewater drug testing efforts at public high schools outside of Albuquerque area and Artesia High School and Park Junior High School were the first to be tested in the southeast corner of the state. It says the Wastewater Drug Monitoring Dashboard was established late last year in response to a public health order issued by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Wuhan Lujan. Uh, In response to substance misuse, quote, knowledge is power and having more data about the presence of illicit substances in school informs our collaborative efforts at the school community and government levels, says Wuhan Luhan. The NMDOH began its testing program on 24 schools in the Albuquerque area with, here it comes, with 88% testing positive for cocaine or its metabolite, and 29% testing positive for fentanyl, or its metabolite. 92% of schools tested positive for methamphetamine, or its metabolite. However, it is not possible to distinguish whether those were the result of legal drug use, such as ADHD medications or illicit drug use like crystal meth. I'm not sure it matters. It means these kids are drugged. Big time. It says, as for Artesia High School results, the NMDOH reported the following substances as having been detected on December 11th of 2023 hydrocodone, methamphetamine, amphetamine, and benzylicogonanana. No way I got that right. Don't care. Drugs. That's all we need to, that's all we need to know. Drugs. Amphetamine was detected in testing conducted by Park Junior High. Metabolites are the chemical compounds that drugs break down into after they are consumed. The human body metabolizes some of the drugs included in this effort very quickly, making them difficult to detect in wastewater unless they are flushed directly or consumed within a short period of time. Measuring both drugs and their metabolites provides additional evidence as to whether a drug has been consumed. It says results do not indicate how many individuals use drugs, the quantity of drugs consumed, where drugs were consumed, i.e. on or off school property, or whether the drugs were used by students, staff, or visitors. Well, let's assume it's everybody. It says schools where... Drugs were not detected could still have drug use within them and within the campus community that were consumed on another day when testing did not occur. It says, quote, We know with the passage of the marijuana law, unfortunately there will be drugs in our schools, say Artesia Public Schools Superintendent Darian Jaramillo uh, said Wednesday afternoon, quote, I am struggling with the variables of this test. At times, the custodians put cleaning chemicals down the drains 
So does that alter the results of the tests? Question mark. I don't know. He continued and said, quote, but I don't negate the fact that this study just sheds some light on this matter and can contribute to raising awareness and fostering a dialogue within our community. It's crucial to understand the extent of the problem, its root cause, and potential solutions that can help create a safer and healthier environment for our students in Artesia, unquote. It says elsewhere in the southern and eastern portions of the state, the NMDOH has conducted testing at several Las Cruces schools, including Oregon Mountain, where amphetamine, cocaine, and benzo were detected, Mayfield, where amphetamine was detected, Centennial, where no drugs were detected, and Las Cruces High, where meth, amphetamine, cocaine, and benzo were detected. Well, I don't think we're talking about custodial cleaning materials now, are we? I mean, if that were true, then they'd all test positive. So there goes the superintendent's theory right out the window. You're talking about kids on drugs. You're talking about staff members on drugs. And I showed this chart, by the way, rather interesting, uh, in the last war video, if memory serves. The most amount of antidepressants that are used in our population are among white women of all ages, with the highest percentage being among white women who are 45 years and older. So, look at your staff members and how many of your staff members are on antidepressants. Yikes. It says at Paralis High School, oxycodone, meth, Amphetamine, cocaine, and benzo were detected, and those same drugs were detected in Floyd. Clovis High tested for benzo, amphetamine, meth, hydrocodone, oxycodone, and oxymorphine, and Texaco for hydromorphine, meth, amphetamine, and benzo. Jesus. These kids and staff members are loaded and peeing it out of them. This is nuts. Just nuts. Do you need another reason, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> do, you, do you need another reason to leave? The wastewater's filled with drugs because the people urinating are filled with drugs. Yikes. Okay. Let me read this to you. A little more workplace DEI if you're interested. Uh, a listener of the show who I've brought up before who will go unnamed for the meantime. They know who they are, and thank you for sending it. They said this. They said, some DEI questionnaires from my brother's job in case you wanted to throw up in your breakfast. Uh, and here's a screenshot that apparently their brother sent them. And again, this is, uh, this is turning into, well, it is remarkably typical now within most working environments. And it certainly is, of course, at the university level. And within, I'm sure, K-12 levels as well. But this is interesting. Uh, this, of course, is neither of those environments. But it says the following here at the top of this questionnaire. Again, it's just one, one quick screenshot. It says, now, now as you consider the working environment at ACA slash NY, life plan CCONY, how inclusive an environment do you think it is for each of the following people? This is on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being threatening and 10 being considered fully inclusive. So again, 
as you consider the working environment, how inclusive an environment do you think it is for each of the following people? And it wants you to rate women, men, white people, people of color, and transgender people. On a scale, again, of everything from threatening at zero to ten fully inclusive. And apparently five is labeled accepting but not welcoming. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Oh, this is just hilarious. Who answers this honestly and expects to get the job? (laughs) Who's going to do that? Who's going to be like, you know what? Uh, Accepting but not welcoming women. Uh, I'll give them a five. Well, white people, fully inclusive, because I'm white, and, you know, they're clearly the most productive. And then uh, people of color, well, that depends, and transgender people get a firm zero. I mean, who's going who's gonna to actually fill this out? Again, doesn't this seem against the law? Doesn't it seem like all of this is just entrapment? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you fill this out if you were so desperate for the job, you would compromise your own integrity? And you would fill out, you would put a 10 for everything. I mean, wouldn't you have to? Again, (laughs) if you even deviated one point. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you deviating just one point. You gave women, men, white people, and people of color, for example, a 10. Fully inclusive. That's what you want the environment to be. But when it came to transgender people, instead of giving them a 10, you gave them a 9. Wouldn't people look at that and be like, hmm? Why did they give them a nine? Or again, you pick any of those particular individuals, so to speak, and, and you, just, you just lay off one, one point or two points. Give them an eight or a nine as opposed to a ten. <laughs> who does that? Are they going to hire the person who puts white people at zero? And maybe puts themselves, if they're a tranny or, uh, you know, or, or a black American or even an illegal, or, you know, and they're going to give themselves a ten? I mean, this is just, it's exhausting. This has to go away, ladies and gentlemen. It has to go away. It has to be illegal. We have to get back to a time when this didn't exist. We have to get back to that time. Or it's just, it's too late then. It's just too late. In fact, there was an article on Zero Hedge, believe it or not, that actually kind of connects to this. And I'm going to paraphrase it as quickly as I can here, just for the sake of brevity, but it, it had to do with more individuals, and I believe it, had to, it specifically had to do with white people. It said, more whites are quietly resigning from the working environment and basically doing just enough to get by, e- even if they are working within particular working environments, again, whether it be online, at home, or in an office. They're doing just enough to either get fired or just enough to not get fired. It's like they're walking this tightrope like all the employees in the movie Office Space. They're just doing enough to maintain an income without doing any more than what they're contractually obligated to do. And if they're, if they're leaving, they're, they're, they're quietly leaving their, their particular place of employment. They're not making a giant hubbub about it. They're not telling everybody how horrible the place is and how all of this DEI nonsense is a huge problem. But, man, I mean, it really is wearing down on the psyche of, of the American worker. And it's beyond disgusting. 
And it has to be, again, done away with. It has to be illegal and made to be illegal. It's a direct violation of the Civil Rights Act. Over and over and over again. Why they get away with this is beyond me. Again, it's like, I remember, I remember a long time ago. I mean, hell, it was 10 years ago. I remember 10 years ago when I was an adjunct, this was the very first time I had to fill out something like this, and it was a workplace harassment and sexual harassment questionnaire. I had to fill this out before, you know, I, I, I started working at Miami University as an adjunct, and I only did that job for a semester, but that was it. I remember sitting down and saying to myself the same thing I just asked here. What am I going to do? What am I going to actually say on this? Am I going to say, you know what? The best place to harass a woman is in the working environment. That's the best place. Nothing like grabbing a little piece of tail every single time I walk into the office, because as we all know, that makes the entire office more friendly for everybody in a more inclusive environment. If you're playing grab ass and you're doing this and you're doing that, I mean, who's going to answer it that way? Nobody. No, one, no, no one's going to say that unless a complete psycho who doesn't want the job. Not to mention, of course, and it goes without saying, you don't do that in the environment. <laughs> you, you don't. It's illegal. It's disgusting. It's a thousand other things. But again, why even have it? Why have it? I mean, it, it's rhetorical. I know why they have surveys like this. They have them because if you end up harassing somebody or being discriminatory against someone, they always use these surveys to justify their firing you. It's just another example of something that goes in your personnel file that they can use against you in the future. That if your actions don't match up the way that you filled out these surveys, then they've got you. And that's it. That's the way that it goes. But man, the surveys are getting thicker and longer and more absurd. So much so, again, that they're singling out race and they're making more of a race war exist here. Again, the word racism doesn't exist. It's not real. It's completely fabricated. And again, it's been said a million times. You even see it on the sides of football fields now, particularly in the NFL. Have you, did, I mean, have you caught any of those? Say no to racism. There's, they have all these slogans now all over the place because perpetuating any kind of a race divide is a huge business model. I mean, it's a, massive, it's a massive cash cow. They have to keep the race division alive. Too many people make too much money on it. And we know who's perpetuating it. We know who these people are. Just continues to be the case because, again, they're in it for the money. So there's that. Okay, quick little update here from Kim Carter. Uh, she's in the orientation phase, as she says, regarding home health visits and doing home health for individuals. And bless her heart, she's dropping red pills on the people that she's interacting with. She, uh, she texted me this just the other day. She said, I just saw a 36-year-old man that had a heart attack and required open-heart surgery and a bypass. No previous cardiac history. I said, jabbed, I'm sure. She said, yep. Then there was another one. She said, I had an older lady in her 60s that now has uh, fib, atrial fibrillation, I assume, that previously had no cardiac history, and I freaking shoved the red pill down both her and her husband's throat 
because both of them got all three of them. She said that they got three shots and they received, uh, I can't even believe I'm saying this, they received, both of them got a J&J shot, a Moderna shot, and a Pfizer booster. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. But unfortunately, too, as we know, it is believable. These people are out there. And that right there, again, that's the jab spectrum. It's another notch in the never-ending jab spectrum. Remarkable. You can't jab your way into good health. It just doesn't work that way. Well, it's stress-related. That's why I have this heart condition. It's just stress-related. Oh, it's stress-related, all right. Just not from the environment, per se, and your personal life or working environment. It's because of the things that you're injecting into your body. That's why. Amazing. Okay, I'll end with this. This is from the Kingston Report by Karen Kingston. This was from just the other day, too, January 22nd. She titled it, Pfizer's Immunity is Delusional. Pre-trial date ordered for Texas versus Pfizer lawsuit. Pfizer is being sued. This is not imaginary. Here's why Pfizer's immunity arguments are delusional, flawed rather, and why other states' victims and investors can sue Pfizer for defrauding them. Uh, let's see. It said on January 5th of 2023, I predicted that the judge, Texas judge rather, would essentially tell Pfizer to go pound sand if the big pharma giant tried to play the all crime is legal under the PREP Act card. As per her December 5th article, Pfizer is going to be hard pressed to find a judge in Texas that's going to, number one, Set a new precedent by legalizing all crime in the state of Texas during an alleged national public health emergency. And two, forfeit his or her authority to rule on the Texas versus Pfizer lawsuit under the absurd pretense rather, that Pfizer is going to show a judge their get-out-of-jail-free card and claim, quote, Your Honor, we're told by the U.S. government that we have permission to commit crimes in the state of Texas, including defrauding Texas residents with zero liability under the PREP Act as a covered person, quote-unquote. So, Your Honor, Texas has, I'm sorry, Texas can not sue Pfizer for 18 violations of the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act that we committed against 3.5 million Texans. You have no authority and have to dismiss the case, unquote. And she said, as she stated in that article in December, quote, it is truly imaginary play theater to believe that a Texas judge is going to let Pfizer get away with the unbelievably epic fraud that the big pharma giant committed against Texans. It's not going to happen. Again, time will tell on this. That's really about all I can say regarding it. There's no analysis needed. I just think time will tell. Uh, I, I fully understand, again, that it puts, it puts any judge really in a pickle. Like she said, they wouldn't, want, they wouldn't want to forfeit their own authority over the case, and at the exact same time, they wouldn't want to legalize deceiving individuals. We know informed consent was never given. We know endless people in endless lines of work. Again, the medical industry, of course, clearly. Endless individuals within the military and, frankly, any other line of work where the shots were mandated or told that uh, you have to take them or else you can't work here. Every single one of these environments should be on the hook for this. All of them. But it really is only going to take one case to break free here in order for the whole dam to crack. 
And uh, honest to God, once that happens, everybody needs to have that particular case on their phone so that they can access it for any employer. Again, the people moving forward that have absolutely no idea that any of this is taking place is, is still overwhelming. These working environments still have no idea that endless people are dying from the shots. They have no idea that endless people are now being sued and an entire state has an entire lawsuit. Again, thanks to Ken Paxton, who they tried to get rid of, against Pfizer in order to hold them accountable for lying to people and keeping information from the public. And of course, they're keeping information from the doctors, but unfortunately, this might get the doctors off the hook too, which is really kind of a sad state of affairs and sort of inadvertently protects them because then they'll say, well, Pfizer lied to us. We had no idea. Well, when everybody's thinking alike, someone's not thinking. There's that old saying again. So there you go. I'll end with this. Just got this uh, sent to me recently here. This is out of Michigan from True the Vote. It says, quote, we're hearing new drop boxes are dropping in Michigan. If you see a drop box in Michigan or anywhere without capacity for monitoring, remote, no cameras, inquire with your local election official and also with your sheriff. Unmonitored drop boxes are a recipe for disaster. Do not do nothing, unquote. Yeah, you should probably just burn them. That'd be the quicker solution, don't you think? Or at the very least, again, if they have these drop boxes, there need to be citizen journalists now standing next to these drop boxes with their cell phones out, watching these individuals show up with stacks and stacks of ballots as they toss them all in. Get their faces. They'll be wearing masks, I'm sure. But actual citizens need to find these drop boxes and either, again, get rid of them or at the very least, Monitor them on a day-in and day-out basis for when these ballots start getting filled out and just crammed into these boxes. Get the license plates of the people that are dropping them. Surveil them as much as you can. Gather all this information together. Communicate with your friends and whoever else that you're working with to do this. And then, you know, pray that somebody's going to hold them accountable. But honest to God. We got to see something happen here. I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it. Something monumental has got to break here and has got to give. And I feel like, again, it's either going to happen this year or after the inauguration next year, assuming that all, you know, all things go swimmingly with the Donald Trump election. But man, these governors have to get arrested. The people they're associated with have to get arrested. There have to be arrests. There have to be hangings. And we want to see them publicly. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. With that said, I will catch you on Friday and hopefully have a few more uh, Ethan Crumbly updates to bring you regarding the trial of his parents. With that said, I'll catch you on Friday. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless. <laughs>